This morning, it is my privilege to be able to share with you. And so if you would open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and we're going to read verses 11 through 17, and then we'll pray once again, and then we'll talk about a few things this morning. So First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, it says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you this morning to study your word and to ask that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray once again that you would anoint and fill each one of us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit, that you would grant to us your understanding and discernment, that we would be able to rightly divide your word this morning, and I pray, Father, that you would give me your words to speak and not my own. Lord, that we would truly be able to be set and focused upon you and the things that you desire to speak and teach to our hearts this morning. And so we commit this time unto you once again, and we ask and pray all of this. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about politics, about government, about the separation of church and state, the equation of church and state, and later on about the submission of church and state. And it comes down to, at the very end, a Christian's civil responsibilities, which is the title of the message this morning. And it seems as though every four years we go through this period of extra emphasis about elections and politics. People who sometimes for three, three and a half years don't have anything to say at all about politics about Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians or Green Party or Tea Party or whatever else. But it seems like every four years around this time there's a period of extra emphasis. And obviously the election of our president is an important event and it happens every four years so there's some correlation there. But politics and civil responsibility are a part of our life all the time. Whether we recognize it or not, not just during an election cycle. Every day we are affected by politics, by government, by rules, by laws in this land. And we are blessed. Some people may disagree, but I don't think there's really any rational way to disagree with the fact that we are blessed to be citizens of the United States. There are a lot of other places. Sure, if you guys want to clap, I mean, I'm not a clapper, but I think we're blessed. I, I've, I've been to other countries, and I've talked to people who have been to far more places than I have and seen far worse things than I've ever seen. And they all come to the same conclusion that we are extremely blessed to be citizens of this country. It doesn't mean that it's perfect. No one is perfect, so how can we expect any kind of man-made thing to be perfect? But we are extremely blessed. And so as we go through this message this morning, I want us to have this understanding first and foremost that we are blessed first as citizens of heaven. If you are a child of God, then you are blessed as a citizen of heaven. But one of the blessings that God has given to us here is that we are also citizens of this country, of the great United States. And to understand that we are affected by politics and government, whether we recognize it or not. And it's more obvious right now, I would say more than at any time in my lifetime, during this entire pandemic situation, we have been directly affected in a day-to-day -day basis. You know, one of my responsibilities as the administrator here at the church has been to, to sort through all of the different rules and mandates and regulations and how does that apply to an individual, how does that apply to a business, how is that different for a church, when, are, when does this go into effect, when are there exceptions, all of that stuff. And, and it can be just mind-numbing. But we all 
understand, we recognize it, especially now more than ever, that we are affected by government on a daily basis. And so it's something that's important in our lives. But the bigger issue is for us to determine what our responsibilities are as it relates to government and to politics as Christians. And as easy as it would be for us to rely on our own opinions or even the opinions of other people, I think that it's important for us to see what exactly the Bible says. Because that should be our authority. What does the Bible say? So today we're going to take a mini tour of scripture and we're going to try to literally get a well-versed view of civil responsibility as God has laid it out for us in his word. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about are two of the main differing views on church and state. And for the purposes of our time together this morning, church is going to be referred to as religion, religion in general, not just Christian churches, but, but religion in general, and state is government. And so there are obviously differing opinions about what a Christian's involvement should be when it comes to non-church issues. And so the first one is the equation of church and state. The equation of church to state is, is to say that they are co-equal in a way similar to that of the three branches of government that we have here in the United States. We have the executive branch, which is the president, the legislative branch, which is Congress, and the judicial branch, which is the court system. And so, just like those are co-equal and there are a system of checks and balances, the equation of church and state is that they are the same. They are co-equal branches of the same thing, and in some cases that they are one and the same. The most obvious example of this in modern day society would be Vatican City. So the Vatican City state is its own city state or country which is ruled by the Pope who also happens to be the Archbishop of Rome and the head of the Roman Catholic Church. So in this particular city state, though it is small, the political and religious leadership are one and the same. So there is an obvious equality of church and state. And in some respects, this is what the children of Israel had during the time of Moses and Joshua and the, judge, the judges all the way up until the point where they clamored for a government like everyone else. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, it says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So his sons did not walk in his ways. And if you know anything about Samuel from the first seven chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel was a man that truly desired to know God deeply, more and more day by day, that he was actually able to hear the voice of God audibly, even as a young child. And that that continued throughout his life, that he truly had a relationship with the Father. But it says that his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after three things that we tend to see in the news almost daily. Dishonest gain, taking bribes, and perverting justice. Unfortunately, we are imperfect people. And so we still hear about all three of those things happening in our government here in the United States at different times. But in verse 4 it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice, however you shall solemnly forewarn them, and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And so Samuel was upset that they wanted a king. Samuel was upset that they had rejected not only him, but his sons. And if you look at it, I think that that's always something that has been interesting to me, is that Samuel was upset that they had rejected them, even though it doesn't say that Samuel was upset that his sons did not walk in the ways that he had laid before them. And I think that that is the first thing for us to recognize this morning, is that we need to, just as we sang this morning, to recognize when we have gone astray, 
not just as individuals, not just as a body here in this fellowship, but even as a city, as a state, as a nation, and even bigger, as an entire world, that we have fallen. We have fallen away from our Christian heritage, from our Christian roots, and we need to get back to that. We need to walk in the ways of the Lord. But they said, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. And so Samuel was upset. This thing displeased him. And so he went to the Lord and the Lord said, don't be upset about this because they're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me that I should not reign over them. They wanted to be like everyone else. And something that, that I think became a little bit more clear to me after I shared last night is that we have some similar things going on in our nation right now. We started with the fact that we're blessed to be in this country and to recognize that it's not perfect and that the system of government is not perfect. But why should we clamor to be like all the other nations and to just burn the system down and start over? That's what they were clamoring for. They said, look, these guys, they haven't done it well, so we need to get rid of it. We need to scrap the whole thing and we need to start over. And God is telling him, look, they've rejected me. And I think that that's more important. We need to recognize that there has been a rejection of God, even in this country. And we need to get back to honoring God, to honoring God in everything that we do. But he says that, that you need to solemnly forewarn them. And so Samuel goes and he warns them that a human king would be even worse than the human judges. And they still didn't listen. They wanted an earthly king anyway. And so they were blessed and cursed with King Saul. And Saul started off well, and then he continued to just downhill slide, and he finished awfully. And then David replaced him, and he did similarly well at the beginning, and he didn't finish nearly as bad as Saul, but he still didn't finish on the high note that he had started on. And after David, it was pretty much just an overall downhill slide after that. Until the children of Israel were finally overcome, they were taken captive, and they were dispersed. But this particular form of government, the Bible speaks about happening two more times in human history, and they're both going to be in Earth's future. The first one is with the Antichrist and the one world government and the one world religion. And we all know how that's going to turn out. But the second one is the more important one, and that's when Jesus comes to reign and to rule on the Earth for a thousand years. When Jesus came the first time, many Jews believed that that's what he was coming to do, to overthrow the then current government and to rule here on earth. Because if there is one thing that we know, it is that none of us are perfect. And so knowing that God reigning here on the earth, that would be perfection. That would be the only time that government would be absolutely perfect. But we know that that's not what Jesus came to do the first time. In John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, it says, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So we know that Jesus has promised to return. We know that, that he is going to come to rule and to reign here on the earth and then for all of eternity. And that we will reign together with him. But that wasn't what he came to do the first time. He didn't come to replace everything. He came into the world to save those who were lost, which is literally everyone. He came to save us. And so we are blessed, hopefully all in this place this morning, to have been saved and to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ and with our Heavenly Father. But that is the first view on church and state, is the equation of church and state. The second one is also very popular, especially nowadays, and that is the separation of church and state. There are a lot of people both inside and outside the physical church who believe that the separation of church and state means that Christians are to leave their religious beliefs at the door before entering the arena of politics. The First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution actually says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble. Notice that it says peaceably to assemble. And to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And so it says that Congress, the government, shall make no law regarding religion. It doesn't say anything about what religion's responsibilities are towards the government. 
And this was ratified back in December of 1791. But way back in the early 1800s, there was a committee from the Danbury Baptist Association in Connecticut that was concerned, even though that was already ratified and it was part of the Constitution, they were concerned that someday they would lose their right to practice their religion freely. And so they wrote to a man named Thomas Jefferson. His letter in response is where the phrase separation of church and state actually comes from. And so I'm not going to read his whole letter to you, but the paragraph that he writes about this specific thing starts with, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so there were a lot of words there, but what he's saying is that he is in agreement with this Baptist association that religion is a matter which lies solely between a man and his God. That means that nobody else, regardless of who they are, regardless of what opinion they have, what authority they might have here on the earth, that no one else has a right to tell you or me how we should worship. That, a matter, that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God. And he owes account to no one else for his faith or for his worship. And he continued that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. So it's only actions and not opinions. And that they should not make any law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So once again, reinforcing what had already been ratified in 1791, that the government should have no say in matters of religion. And then he continued on by saying, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. And that is where that phrase comes from. It has absolutely nothing to do with the church not being able to speak about government, not being able to be involved in government. It is the other way around. The separation of church and state in this country is actually that the government has no right to tell a church how they should worship their God. Pastor Charlie has been very adamant the last several weeks about some of the things that are happening to our brothers and sisters in this country and other states, even in our sister state, New Mexico, where in New Mexico, they, they have banned the singing of worship songs in churches. I understand that there are health risks, there are concerns, but, but where, where does it say that you have a, an authority to make a law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Our nation was founded upon these things. The freedom of religion and the freedom to express that faith in that religion. And that's what the separation of church and state was. So what Jefferson wrote was not in reference to keeping the church out of the affairs of state, but actually to keep the state out of the affairs of the church. And God has not told us to hang up our Christian values as we walk out the church doors after worship services. We've talked about this in a lot of other areas and aspects of life, that God desires for us to be the same whether we are around other believers, whether we are in our prayer closet alone with him, or whether we are out in the world. We are called to live the same. We are called to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be holy, because he who called us is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And so our responsibilities as Christians overwhelm every other responsibility that we have in our lives. And so this leads us to a Christian's responsibilities regarding government. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, it says, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules the people groan. So God makes it pretty clear that righteous rulers are a blessing and wicked rulers are quite the opposite. But regarding righteousness, it doesn't mean looking for perfection in a person because only Jesus is that. Only Jesus is that. Instead, it is looking to the overall direction and pattern of a leader's life. 
looking at the combination of words and actions on the whole compared to what we clearly see laid out for us in God's word. In essence, what it comes down to in this country when we are talking about political figures, it is a job interview leading up to that election because that is what we are electing them to do. We are electing them for this to be their job. This is what they are going to do full time. So this is a job interview leading up to that election. And at the end of the election, the votes are tallied up and the winner of that election has received that job offer. And it has always been accepted, but they received that job offer. And so it's important for us to look at the, the qualifications and to look at the pattern of a person's life, his words, his deeds, and his actions, but also to look at his skill set. Now, I've been a football fan for as long as I can remember, and, and largely, for most of that time, a Dallas Cowboys fan. And you can take that or leave it. I, it really doesn't bother me either way. I've been a Cowboy fan since we were 1 in 15. So <laughs> there's nothing that you could say that could make it any worse than that year. So I've been a Cowboy fan, but even when I was younger, I was just an extremely diehard football fan. And so when the Cowboys weren't doing well and it got towards the playoff time and, and leading up to the Super Bowl, I still wanted to watch all the games and I, I would choose a team to root for. And I can remember, I think it was back in the late 80s, maybe even into the 90s, the New York Giants, which I don't even know how I found myself as a Cowboy fan rooting for the Giants, but the Giants had a quarterback named Phil Simms. And Phil Simms got injured that year. And he was replaced by a backup quarterback. And this backup quarterback had done nothing leading up to this point in time. But all of a sudden, they go on this fantastic run. And I remember having a conversation with my uncle, and he asked me who I was going for. And I told him the Giants. And he said, why? You're a Cowboy fan. I said, yeah, but the quarterback's a Christian. And he said, what does that have to do with football? And I had no response. Because it, it really, honestly, has nothing to do with football. But I was so excited that he was such a pronounced Christian, that he really came out with it. It wasn't something that he hid. It wasn't something that, that just kind of came out every now and then. But he was very obvious and, and forward about the fact that he was a Christian and thinking how awesome that was. And, and it's great. But there are a lot of awesome children of God in this room today. And I don't think any one of us could quarterback a football team in the National Football League, right? So what, is that, what does that have to do with his qualifications for being a professional football player? What does that have to do with their qualifications for office? Largely, it doesn't have as big an effect as we would think. And even more so, unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot of Christians at this point that are involved in politics. There are a lot of reasons for that. I, I think that one of them is apathy, that, that we've just gotten used to the fact that, that government and politics, it's a nasty place to, to have to live. It's a nasty place to have to frequent and to, to have your job be that. But I also think that it comes down to just not heeding the voice of God. It comes back to not being discerning when we go to the ballot box. Not being discerning. So it's important that we do look at the overall direction and the pattern of a leader's life, but we also look at what are they doing when they are actually in office? What are the things that they are doing? And to make sure that those things that they are doing in their job, as it relates to us and ruling over us, that those things line up with the Word of God. In John chapter 17, this is somewhat of a lengthy passage, beginning in verse 9, it says, I pray for them, this is Jesus, and he's speaking about the disciples, I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you in these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And notice in verse 14, I have given them your word, 
And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And so notice that Jesus says here in verses 14 and 15 that the disciples are hated because they are not of the world. But then he goes on to say that he's not asking that the Father would take them out of the world, but that he would keep them from the evil one, which the understanding there is that they would remain in the world, that they would go out into the world, not to be of it, not to be like it, to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be holy, to be different, to be kept from the evil one, but to be about the Father's business here on the earth and to go out and to be an example, to be a light, to be the salt of the earth. Jesus prays that the Father would keep them as they live for him here on the earth. And then in verse 17, he says to sanctify them by your truth. Pastor Charlie shared a lot with us last weekend about God's unchanging truth that is not relative or dependent on anyone else's beliefs or opinions. Because there is one absolute truth, and that is God. God's truth is absolute. And the truth doesn't change. And yet we, especially in this country, have gotten so far away from understanding what truth is that I was listening to the radio the other day, and there was a, a radio spot for a podcast that was taking place, a pretty famous podcast, and the lady was describing how this table or this, this podcast where they gather around a table is where, other, where guests can come and freely share their version of the truth. I mean, really, that's, that's how far we have fallen that you can come and share your version of the truth. There aren't versions of the truth. There is the truth, and there is everything else which is not the truth, which means that it is lies. And if you tell something that's just 1% false, the whole thing is a lie. The whole thing is a lie. So we need to trust in God's absolute truth. And so Jesus, I mean, this is Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, and his prayer in verse 17 is that the disciples would be sanctified by God's truth. Because God's word is truth. And then, just so that we're clear that this applies to us just as much as it did for them, is in verse 19, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And then in 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Jesus was praying for us as well as for the disciples. And he was praying that we would be sanctified by the truth. The truth of God, the truth of God's word is the plumb line, the benchmark, the compass, the true north by which everything else in our lives should be measured, including government and politics. Everything has to line up with the word of God. It's not about lining up with some preacher or some pastor or some reverend or some archbishop or the pope or anybody else. It's not about lining up with a president or a vice president or a governor or a mayor or anybody else. It is about lining up with the word of God. Do the things that we are doing line up with the word of God? As a nation, do the things that we are doing line up with the word of God? This is the plumb line. It's the true north. It's the compass. And so we know that we are to apply God's truth to everything in this life because Jesus said it, that we would be sanctified by God's truth as we live in this world. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice that he says, in the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. The truth of God, to know God, to know his word, to know his truth, and of Jesus our Lord. In verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life 
and godliness. God has already given to you, if you are a child of his this morning, everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Everything. He's not holding some things back in reserve because you, you don't know enough yet. He says that as his divine power has given to us, past tense, has already given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through what? Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So grace and peace have been multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that his divine power has given to us everything necessary for life and godliness, and that all of it has come through the knowledge of him, by which, in verse 4, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Again, to be sanctified by God, to be sanctified by his truth, to be cleansed by the washing of water of his word, that we would be able to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust, that we would be set apart, that we would be different, but going back to the beginning of verse 4, that we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises, and one of those exceedingly great and precious promises was Jesus promising the great helper, the gift of the Holy Spirit, who would come and who would remind us of all the things that Jesus has spoken that would speak to us, that would teach us all things. So God has given us everything necessary for us to live a godly life, a holy, righteous, sanctified by his truth life in every area and aspect, including politics and government. And these things have all come through knowledge and relationship with Jesus and with the Father and the Holy Spirit. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And so we, we recognize all those things. We, we understand them. We see them in different places. To put on tender mercies, to be kind, to be humble to have meekness, to suffer long with people, to bear with one another, to forgive one another, even as Christ forgave us. And then verse 14, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And then in verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, and then to let the word of Christ dwell in you, not beside you, not next to you, not around you, not just when you come to church, not just when you hear a Bible study, not just when you go and you spend time reading a devotion or you listen to Caleb or, or whatever radio station, but it says to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. That means that to have the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom, that we are spending time studying his word. That we are spending time getting to know what the word of God says. I've shared before that one of the most popular questions that I get as a pastor is, how do I know what it is that God wants from me? in whatever, in, in a relationship, in a job, in school, in my family, in my workplace, whatever it is, in my finances, how do I know the will of God? And the first thing, one of the, the most just simple things that, that has ever been shared with me that, that I think just encompasses everything in life, if you are truly trying to find the will of the Lord about something, if you are praying and you are asking God and you are just falling on your face before the Lord because you desperately desire to know what God's will is in a particular situation, you need to start by first checking your life and seeing if your life is lining up with all the things that God has already written down. How much easier will it be for us to be able to hear and to discern the voice of the Lord when we're already taking care of the things that he's already laid out for us. Because then it becomes so much easier because we recognize the voice of the Lord. Because we can see it, we know it, we understand it, we've learned it. Because we've been taught it. Not just by, by teachers and, and pastors and preachers, 
but because we've been taught it by the Holy Spirit. Because we have spent time in devotion with him. Because we are getting to know what the word of God has already said. And then we can know what it is that God wants from us and all these other things. And then he closes out this section in verse 17 by saying, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the word of Christ dwells within us because we're actively in it. And then he says that once that's taking place, that whatever you do, wherever you go, that in everything you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus for his glory, for his honor, and according to his guidelines, according to his will and guidance and purpose and direction. That's what we are trying to do in the strength and through the leading of God's Holy Spirit. And so we understand that, that as Christians, we have been given everything necessary for life and godliness, including as it relates to politics and government, and that we need to have the word of Christ dwell in us richly, in all wisdom so that we can discern what we should do. And that leads us to how a Christian should respond to government. The submission of church and state. Not the submission of the church to the state and not the submission of the state to the church, but the submission of both church and state to God. And that brings us back to 1 Peter chapter 2, where we started in verse 13. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God. Not the will of man, not the will of the ruler. It says the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, because we're free. We are free in Christ, yet not using that freedom, that liberty as a cloak for vice, as, a, as an excuse for us to go and to do what we want, but as bondservants of God. So that even though we're free, that we still are in submission to a higher authority, and that is our Father. And then he says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we submit to the rulers of the land for the Lord's sake because it is the will of God. And God knows exactly what he's working with in every single individual that he's placed in this world. Not just inside his body, but everywhere. Because if God didn't know exactly what was taking place and exactly the heart of man everywhere, then he wouldn't be God. I think we can all agree on that. So if this is God, then God was not surprised. There are never any surprises for him when election day happens or when a revolution takes place in some country or when a dictator rises to power. None of these things have ever caught God off guard. God orders all things and people in their place. So when he says to be obedient and submit to the laws of the land, he already knows what he's commanding us. He knows what he has commanded us. He knew before the beginning of time everything that was going to take place for all of time. So he already knew and he still said it. He still put it in place. I remember four years ago going through some times of, of just desperate searching for just what it was that, that was going to take place in the election. And, and I was so overwhelmed and concerned because I I heard so many people talking about all the terrible things that could happen if it was one candidate instead of the other. And, and yes, those things, many of them, I truly believe, would have happened if things had turned out differently. But at the end of the day, all my worrying wasn't going to change anything. And I had to be reminded about this fact, that God was not going to be surprised. That Wednesday morning, when I woke up, regardless of what happened, that God was not going to be surprised. And there, there was great comfort in that fact. Great comfort in that fact that God knew what he was doing. And he always does. But something that, that I had passed by when I had read through this particular section before, and as we're going to see also in Romans chapter 13, is the phrase in this passage, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. And that's important. It is very, very crucial that we understand what, what God was saying here. 
we need to keep in mind that the authorities must be calling balls and strikes correctly. They have to be calling evil, evil, and good, good. That is when we are submitted to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Because they are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good and not the other way around. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Another way to say that last verse, who have their version of the truth. Who have their version of the truth because they are so wise in their own eyes and maybe even in the eyes of others that now truth is a relative thing to them. And so they are able to call evil good and good evil. But we as Christians don't have that opportunity. And praise God for that. Because we have God's unfailing, unchanging truth. Because we know that the foundation upon which our lives are built, Jesus Christ, is unfailing and unchanging, completely perfect. And so we have to understand that evil is evil and good is good. There can't be a middle ground with it. Too many times there are people or groups, even within the body of Christ, that make errors in this area. And they try to justify it by calling it mercy. Mercy is acknowledging that there is just cause for punishment, meaning that, that evil is still evil. But acknowledging that there is just cause for that evil, for that wrong, but then reducing or relenting from the punishment altogether. That is mercy. Not receiving the full extent of the punishment that is deserved. That is what mercy is. Mercy is not saying, well, they didn't really do wrong because of the extenuating circumstances. That is not mercy. That's lying. We need to call evil evil and good good. We need to recognize that when we are in disobedience to the laws of the land that are in line with the word of God, then we are also in disobedience to God. And that that is not mercy to say that, well, it's because you don't understand. Well, it's because of this, that, and the other. God's truth is God's truth, period. End of story. God's truth is God's truth, and we need to recognize that. We need to see evil and goodness for what they are and not try to excuse evil and then try to pass that off as being mercy. But this obedience to to authority is a very consistent pattern throughout the Word of God. And the next passage that I want to look at is Romans chapter 13, which seems to be where every government tries to point the church to anytime that they want to get people in line. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed to God. Again, God is not surprised. God knew what was going to take place. He allowed it. He brought it to pass. And everything is working together in the way that he already planned. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. That's pretty clear. Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good work, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister. That's an interesting phrase. He is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, again, the same phrase, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Submitted and obedient to rulers and authorities, when they are not a terror to good works. That is the thing that, that I had missed so many times because what it says in verse 3 is for rulers are not a terror to good works. Rulers should not be a terror to good works. 
but I think we can all agree that there are, there are times, even in this nation, when rulers can be a terror even to good works. And that is the caveat there. That is the, the thing that we need to look at and to recognize is that the rulers cannot be a terror to good works. That is when we are subject to the governing authorities, when they are doing what they are supposed to be doing, and they are not a terror to good works. But he says, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And I think that we can understand that. I was reading through a couple of different commentaries, and they all had the same idea that I had, is the, the picture of driving down the freeway. And you see the, the flashing red lights, and you hear the siren. And you immediately have some things go on. For me, it's about a 15 to 20 minute ordeal, even when they're not coming for me. I see the flashing lights, I hear the siren, and immediately my blood begins to, to, to get heated up, not because I'm angry, but because I'm fearful. I, I start looking at, at the speedometer just to make sure, and then my blood pressure goes through the roof, and, and I'm like, okay, so now like I'm driving, and then all of a sudden like I'm shaky driving because I'm nervous and all this stuff, and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but that is just the reaction because in my past, I have been a reckless driver. You know, my kids are, and it's probably not a good thing, but, but they get a kick out of the story that, that I was put in jail in a different county in Texas because I was speeding. And, and they, they just love the fact, they ask all these questions, what was jail like? I was in there for a couple of hours, but daddy's been in jail, did you know that? And like it's this claim to fame, it's not a good thing. But, but that's how bad it was, that, that I was just going way too fast. And, and I was arrested, and I was put in jail for a few hours, and, and that's, yes, wow, that, that's how fast it was, that was bad. And, and so I have that history, and so I remember what that feeling was like, and all of those feelings come rising back to the top as soon as I see the lights. And then when it passes by and he goes, because I'm not the one that he's after, there's a sigh of relief, but it still takes 15 to 20 minutes for my body to get back to normal, because I was just so fearful, because I remember, because I was fearful of the authorities, because I was doing what was wrong. And that's what he's talking about here. But rulers should not be a terror to good works. I missed that a few times when I had read through this. I remember even as we were going through the beginnings of COVID-19 in the United States and what that was going to be and, and how, how life was going to change and the ordinances of, of the national government, the recommendations of the CDC and the World Health Organization, our, our government in the state level and our governor and what he had to say and, and the, the, the governor, governor's executive orders and then how the city was going to do it and the mayor and how the county was going to do it with the judge. And again, as I shared, as the administrator here, part of my job is to read through all of that stuff and it is so wordy and convoluted and, and one person says this and another person says this. And, but having to go through all of that, to go through all of it, and, and it just burns you out sometimes because you're, you're trying to do what is right. You're trying to be, be in obedience to the authority. And you're having to judge and, and determine what's right and what's wrong and, and how much of this should we take a stand against and how much of this should we submit to. Should I sing in church? Should I even attend church? Should I, should I wear a mask? Should I not wear a mask? When should I? When shouldn't I? Where should I go? What should I be? How should I live? All of these things. And, and it becomes overwhelming. And, and it, just in my job functions, it was becoming overwhelming. And this has happened multiple times since March, where I have just gotten so overwhelmed and had to take a step back because I was reminded that I need to get back to the plumb line, to the truth of God's word, and then determine from that point, okay, now, now that I've gotten back to your word, now that I've prayed about even this, asking that the Holy Spirit would grant to me God's wisdom in secular things as well, in the government, that God would grant me wisdom, that he would lead me, that he would lead all of us so that we would do the right things. And, and there was a, a, a 
how, I'm not sure how many of you guys know what a Venn diagram is, but it's one of those things where you have the circles, the little bubbles, and you put different, different words or different things in all of these things, and some of them overlap. And I remember somebody putting up about a month ago this Venn diagram of a pastor's role during COVID-19. And it had all of these different responses that people within the congregation would have. Well, you opened the church too soon. And then on the other side, well, what are you doing opening the church this early? Well, you haven't done enough to, to prevent the spread. Well, you have just gone overboard and you are just submitting yourself to the devil. And, and just back and forth, back and forth. And there isn't really a middle ground. It's just so polarized. Everything in this country is becoming so polarized. And just having to be burnt out and then just to be reminded that God wasn't surprised. God knew this pandemic was coming. God knew all of the rules, all the ordinances, all the laws, all the people that were going to be in place, and he knew what he was talking about, and so he laid out some very specific things, and here, something that I had missed, and I had to be just enlightened, that God just revealed, is that rulers are not a terror to good works, and when they are, that it, it kind of pushes the other stuff back, because when rulers are a terror to good works, we need to make a stand. We need to do right all the time, even when it's called evil. We honor God always because he's always deserving of it. We honor and submit to earthly authority when it is in line with God's authority. In Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Again, the same concept, to obey and to be ready for what? For every good work. That we have to be in submission, that we have to be obedient but more importantly, that we have to be ready for every good work. All of this comes back to living rightly as a child of God. To speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. So we are ready for every good work. And Peter, in that passage that we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he closed out verse 17, he wrote to honor all people, and in particular, to love the brotherhood, to love the body of Christ, but then he said two sentences at the end of that verse. And notice the order. Fear God, period, honor the king. Because that's the priority. We fear God first, and then we honor the king. We honor the government. We honor the authorities. But first and foremost, we honor God. And when those two come into conflict, we honor God. And there are two examples that I want to share with you, very, very obvious examples from the Bible. The first one is in Daniel chapter 6, verses 4 through 10. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, because he was obedient to the governing authorities. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. And so Daniel at this point in time has risen to power in, in this secular land, in Babylon. And he has become a very trusted advisor, so much so that the governors and the satraps, the other rulers that were below the, the highest authority in the land, that they were jealous of him and they were trying to find some charge against them, against Daniel, so that they could get rid of him. But they couldn't find any because Daniel was obedient to the laws of the land. So these governors and satraps, they decided that they were going to use the law of his God against him. So in verse 6, they thronged before the king and they said thus to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. And therefore, King Darius signed the decree. And so all of these guys get together and they come and, and they just praise the king. You're, you're just amazing. And you are so amazing that all of us who are in authority under you have gotten together and we have come up with this great idea because you are so amazing and awesome that for the next 30 days, nobody can worship or pray to anybody except you or your golden statue. And so now the king says, 
That sounds like a great idea, because why wouldn't it if you are not a child of God? So King Darius signs the written decree, and then notice Daniel's response in verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was, was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. So Daniel had been this perfect model example of being submitted and obedient to the authorities, to the laws of the land, right up until the laws of the land and the ruler of the land came into conflict with God's authority. And at that point in time, Daniel recognized that it was time to take a stand for righteousness, that it was time to take a stand for truth, and he did it very, very strongly. It says when he knew that it was signed, that he went and he did just as he had always done. Just as he had always done. And he went and he knelt on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks to God. And we know that Daniel got tossed in the lion's den. We know that that that, that was the penalty. And he recognized that that would happen and he still went and he did it anyway. A few chapters before, we read in Daniel chapter 3 about three of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In verse 13, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler before Darius, Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you're ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And so it was a very similar situation that they were... Nebuchadnezzar needed to be praised and worshipped, and they all needed to fall down and to do it when they heard the music. And these three men said they weren't going to do that. And so they were brought before this king, Nebuchadnezzar. And so they're, they're basically told, look, we're going to go ahead and let bygones be bygones. If right now, before me, you hear the sound of the music play, and you just bow down before me right now, everything's good. But if not, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And so their answer in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Basically, you already know what the answer is. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But notice verse 18. This is the most awesome part of this whole interaction for me. But if not, even if my God doesn't, save me from the burning fiery furnace let it be known to you O king that we do not serve your gods nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up because they recognized that God's plans are not always man's plans they recognized that God definitely had the power to save them from the burning fiery furnace and they were definitely seeking that God would do that but they also recognized that if God chose not to that it wasn't because he couldn't It was because he chose not to because he had a better plan and he had a better purpose and that he was still God and that there was truth in none other but him. They recognized that. And you know why we didn't look at how either one of those stories end? The first thing is because most of you probably already know. But the second thing is because the victories were already won. The victories were won before the punishment was was doled out and before they overcame the punishment through God's power. The victory was in making that righteous stand because it was when the rulers were a terror to good works. That is when we make the stand. That is when we make the stand for righteousness. So that leads us to the question, well, how do we know? How do we know which one's which? How do we know what to say or what to do, when to make a stand, when not to? And I would lead you back to Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Holy Spirit is tremendous at giving us everything necessary 
reminding us of all the things that we have already been given that are necessary for life and godliness. God is not surprised. God has never been surprised. And the things that we face, even though we're surprised, even though we can become overwhelmed, God has never faced that. He has never faced a moment when he was overwhelmed or shocked or surprised. In every situation, God has a perfect plan and a perfect purpose. It's our job to find it. And the only way that we can find it, if you really want to know, the two things that I would lead you to are, one, get to know the wisdom of the Word of God, and two, pray for the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit in your life. Everywhere. Everything. You know, I, I remember a story when I was growing up. I went on a youth retreat one time, and, and one of the youth leaders that, that he shared at this retreat, he was talking about prayers of faith and, and believing that God can do everything that he, he said he can do and, and how he had shared that with his young kid. And, and the, the boy was, I don't know, maybe like four years old. And there was this, this Christian Bible story video that they always watched. And back, back in the day when I was growing up, we had VCRs. Some of you are too young to even know what that is. But we had VCRs. And the more times that you would play the cassette, the more worn out it would get. And then eventually, it would get to a place where sometimes you couldn't even play it. And then the VCR machine, it was constantly breaking down, and you have to get a new one and all these different things. And so anyway, the VCR broke, and the, the, the cassette wouldn't play. And so he told his son, I'm sorry, it just won't play. It won't work. And he said, well, Dad, did you pray? And he said, oh, my goodness. What am I going to do now? Like, if God doesn't show up right now to fix this VCR, how am I going to convince my son? And, and there was a lot of doubt, and he was like, you know, well, what, what can I do? I was put on the spot. So he prayed, and they put the, the tape back in the VCR, and all of a sudden it worked. And, and his faith was strengthened. His son had no clue that all of those things were going on in his head. But he sincerely prayed. And, and I truly believe that, that when we sincerely pray, God always answers. He doesn't answer the way that we always want him to. But he answers according to the truth of his word the truth of who he is. And so if you really want to know the answer, what is it that God has for me in this situation? Then be faithful to pray for that wisdom, to ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and get to know his word first. It doesn't mean that, that you just, okay, God, I need to know, should I wear a mask or should I not? And you close your eyes and then, okay, I read that whole page and it doesn't say anything about masks. I, I guess God was silent on it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying get to know the word of God because then you'll be able to discern the voice of the Lord in your life. And then you'll know whatever it is, whether it's a mask, whether it's not a mask, whether it's anything else, not just related to COVID-19, everything else. And so I want to close this morning by telling you that there are three things, three ways that as Christians in this nation, that we need to be actively engaged in the government of this nation. The first one, the primary one, because this applies to all of us, regardless of who you are, pray for the leaders that are in authority. Pray for them. It's okay to disagree with them. It's okay to agree with them. But always pray for them. You look through the Bible and you see there were some wicked people that were in authority that God still used for his purposes. Pray for the leaders that we have in this country. Pray that God would use them as ministers of good to those that are righteous. Pray for them. And pray even beyond that, pray that God would reveal himself to them, that they would become children of God. Pray for your leaders. The second thing is vote. It is not okay for you and for me to not vote. It is not okay. I am adamant about that. You have no excuse to not be voting. All of us need to vote. And we need to study. We need to, to show ourselves approved, not just in the word of God, but that's where it starts. But we also need to study about what's going on in politics. What's going on in government? What are the, the people that we're electing, what are they voting for and against? What are the laws that they're passing? What are their positions on different things? You need to get to know. And, and you can Google search, but don't just take the first one. Get, get into it. Study. Spend a little bit of time. 
And we'll try to do our part here in this fellowship. We'll try to make some, some voting guides available for you, not to tell you, okay, here's your ballot. You need to mark this person, this person, this person. That's not what we're going to do. But to give you a comparison, a side-by-side, -side, so that you can see primarily the party platform. One of the first things that, that I think we all need to agree on is that God honors the sanctity of human life. God honors the sanctity of human life. And that begins at conception. It doesn't begin when the baby is born. It begins when the baby is conceived. We need to agree with that. We need to believe that because that's what God says. When I was in my mother's womb, you knew me. If God knew us when we were in our mother's womb, then that means that there was a life there. And if God said that that's a life and God said you can't take a life just because it's inconvenient for you, then we need to agree with that. We need to agree with that. And that's a very clear one. The two dominant parties in American politics, one says abortion is okay, you can kill them. And the other says pro-life. It's a pretty obvious one. One party wants to redefine marriage. God's made it pretty clear how he defines marriage. Who are we to go about redefining that? And yet, we just throw that to the side. Oh, well, it's because. And then we have all these reasons why. Well, I'm going to vote for this party or this candidate or this thing. But what does God say? What does God say in his word? To be obedient to the rulers and the authorities. We are, this fellowship, and, and hopefully this doesn't step on anyone's toes, but if it does, then, then praise God you're offended. We are, we are pro-law enforcement, and we are pro-military. We are so thankful for those of you that serve. We are extremely thankful for those of you that serve, and especially right now, in this society where, where, where we're headed right now with all the, the pressures that you guys are facing, it's part of our job to pray for those people, to pray for those that are, are on the front lines literally every day. I mean, if you see anything about what's going on, we, we're pretty far removed from a lot of the worst things, but there are some places in this country where it is getting ugly. It is getting ugly. We need to pray, and we need to seek out what God's will is, what God has said, what God has already laid out, and not try to look for the loopholes and say, well, but God didn't know. God knew. God knew it all along. We need to be praying. And then the last thing is, if God has put it in your heart to run for office, you need to step up to that calling. It's, it's not an easy thing. But if God has placed it in your heart to run for office, just like the calling in anything else, the, the works and the calling of God, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You can try to be Jonah. It's not going to go well for you. If God has called you to stand up in that arena, then do it. But again, whatever you do, wherever you go, when you vote, when, you, when you're thinking about leaders in office, pray that God would show you how he would have you to do all of those things. And the last thing that I want to leave you with, take your Christian values and morals with you everywhere that you go, especially when you go to vote. But you take those things with you everywhere. You don't ever hang those up. I don't care who you're around. I don't care what anybody else says. We are called to be a light, to be the salt of the earth. We need to make sure that we are doing that everywhere and in everything. Amen?